You know, from the outside, if you're not engaged in what God's doing around the world, then it often seems like it's worse or it's difficult and challenging. But to hear stories, flesh and blood, of people who've lived this, it really sounds like we're the ones missing out. We've chosen, rather than giving 30-minute messages at Reach each week, to tell stories because I believe, we believe that they, they flesh out what this looks like. And because this is so much of a practical response for us, it's just helpful to see what it looks like in the lives of everyday, regular people. <clears throat> so, here we are in the last week. We began talking about the historical nature of this movement of churches, the denomination in America that gives more cents per dollar to international work than any other denomination in America. Last week, we talked about our current Middle East partnership. We met the Greenfields and heard what they do and, and what this partnership has meant to them. And this week, we get personal. And we come to this point every year because we believe it's appropriate to reassess our role in this unfolding drama and kind of recommit between us and God to specifically what that will look like. So, going and sending. If you want to get anything done in Washington, you need to hire a lobbyist, right? You need to hire a slick-talking uh, lobbyist who will represent your group to Washington because Washington is where funds are distributed. Washington is where policies are made or changed. And so if you have a small group of people or you know, a group you represent that needs something or wants something changed, then the way to do this is to hire someone who will stand on the doorsteps of Congress and knock every day and be your face to them, to remind them of your need, to convince them of, of what they should do in light of it. But for the task that we're talking about here, it's not how it works, right? Like, <clears throat> the portions of planet Earth where people do not live within 5,000 miles of a church that don't know anyone who knows Jesus. They don't send people to places who do know Jesus and camp on our doorstep and, you know, get announcement time and just come up and say, hey, remember us? Uh, you guys should come tell us about Jesus. I think that's his name. No, they don't do that because they don't know what they don't know. They don't know what we know. And so they're left making sense of the world as best they can with the information they have, waiting for people who do know Jesus to go and to be sent to cross cultural barriers, to learn languages, to live among them, to build trust, and to share the good news. So the only lobbyist, really, that these people who live in the dark places where there isn't light is Scripture. It's our understanding of this it's God's plan as revealed in this that motivates us. It's his spirit inside of us. The spirit that gave birth to this worldwide redemptive movement. The promise embedded to Abraham that through you, every nation, every ethnic family on earth will be blessed. A promise that was echoed through generations. A promise that became incarnational in the person of Jesus that was spread in the early church around the world. 
this commission by Jesus to his disciples and those that would come after to make disciples of every ethnic family on earth. You may have noticed the world didn't end yesterday. <clears throat> and here's why. Yes, there is the verse that says we won't know the day, and that's why we won't know what day. But, <laughs> but another reason is because Jesus said in Matthew 24, 14, this gospel of the kingdom will be preached as a testimony to every ethnic family on earth, and then the end will come. And this gospel has not been preached to every ethnic family on planet Earth. So it will not happen today or tomorrow unless we all leave now. And no, there's, a, there's almost 2 billion people that don't know anyone, that have never heard. It's not that they've chosen not to believe. It's that they've never had a chance to believe. That's why we dedicate a month of our year to talking about, to articulating, to inspiring, to challenging us towards full engagement with this top priority of God's work in the world. You can see how if this is the main lobbyist for, for, for motivating and moving us to be involved in God's work, believing that human beings are God's plan A to reach the rest of creation, and there is no plan B, then you could see how an incorrect interpretation of this would have a dramatic effect on people's engagement with worldwide work. And that exact thing happened in 1786. There was a young man named William Carey who was preaching that we had a responsibility, an obligation to use the means God had given us to make disciples among the nations. And one time he was preaching and a gentleman, a ranking gentleman in the Church of England stood up in his message and said, essentially, sit down, young man. God will convert the heathen without your help or mine. And he will do it in his way and in his time. And William Carey was so frustrated with this interpretation of Scripture. You see, the Church of England at the time believed that the Great Commission... Jesus saying to his 12 disciples, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of every ethnic family, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. They believed that was given specifically to the 12 disciples. So the day the last one of them died, so did the bearing of that commission. And so since, you know, it's 1786, they were living post that era, they believed that it was their job to teach and to encourage among their own, but that if God wanted to save the heathen, he could do that in his own way. And it just it was, it had no part in us. And William Carey was a student of Hebrew and Greek, and so he'd say, no, that's, that's just an incorrect interpretation. That commission was given to all who would follow Jesus. And so out of his frustration, he spent eight years working on a book a book that eventually was called An Inquiry into the Obligation of Christians to Use Means for the Conversion of the Heathen. That'll sell. <clears throat> and, uh, but this was a landmark book in its time. The, the book was divided into a couple sections. Uh, biblical admonition 
to, for the Christian to, to uh, serve and make disciples among other areas. So he kind of did a biblical study to start the book. He did all missionary activity that had been recorded from the time of Jesus up until then. A, a complete rundown of that. Then he did everything England knew about the world at that time. Political boundaries, geographics, geography, I mean, history. He wrote all this down. And, uh, and then he wrote about how to go, how to, where to live, how to learn a language quickly, all that you would need to be successful in this. And this became the most comprehensive book in its time on those subjects. And it really, for some, began to change their mind about this. In fact, the person who had most strongly opposed William got to the last chapter of the book. And the last chapter was how to raise support. And uh, William Carey described the process of, for this to be successful, there needs to be three strands. A cord of three strands is not easily broken. And the first strand is the work of the Holy Spirit in, in the life of the goer. The second strand is the goer. And the third strand is the sender. And this person, John Ryland, read this last chapter and it clicked. And so he began to realize that while none of his life up until that point had been focused on or engaged in, in going or sending, that he had a huge part to play in sending. And so he made with two of his buddies, Andrew Sutcliffe, Andrew Fuller and John Sutcliffe, Andrew Fuller, think Fuller Theological Seminary, and they come together and they form the first particular Baptist Mission Sending Society. They don't have anyone to go, but they're ready to send. And uh, three... And they come together, and they pray that God would bring them someone to, to send. They, they come across a doctor who had come to Christ while, being, while serving in East India. And he comes back and says, there is a gold mine of souls to be found for Jesus in India, and I want to go. And so they were excited. They believed, they and William Carey believed this was their first worker. But he said, I won't go alone. The one thing they requested from me when I came back was for the Bible to be translated into their own language. And so we need someone who's good at languages to go and translate. And William Carey kind of has this aha moment that all of this conviction and angst he's felt over this issue is going to culminate in him going. And so William and his friend, the doctor, head out. But before they do, he has this solemn moment with these three because he says to them, I literally can't do this without you. And I won't be able to come back every three years and show you pictures and give you updates. Like, I, it will take six months to get there and I will stay there for the rest of my life. So I need to know that you're with me, and that you're going to support me. And he said, I will go down into the mine shaft and I will dig for souls, but I need you to hold the rope. And these three that day, eventually came to be known as the rope holders, said, we will hold the rope until the day we die. And this was the humble beginnings in 17, 
86 of this flurry of activity that we find ourselves in the middle of today. No one participated by and large before that because of an incorrect interpretation of this. Missing God's heart in every page from Genesis to Revelation that his name and glory and salvation be known among all peoples. But this student understood it, believed it, preached it. Hearts were softened and they were sent. William Carey founded the most prestigious college in India of its time. He trained up hundreds of church leaders and pastors. Thousands came to Christ. He translated the entire New Testament into one language and portions into others. But his biggest legacy was the opening of our eyes to, to God's heart for the nations. And I love that behind his story is three men who would travel the country telling people what was going on, advocating, inviting them to join them in the work to support him. We believe that all of us have one of two roles, goers and senders. Now, let's be honest. Going is a little bit more dramatic, right? It sounds cooler. It makes for better movies. It's more high profile. But really, for the majority, it's not the way we will be engaged in what God's doing around the world. It's a small sliver of us who will go. Because it takes so many to send. So most of us will be senders. But senders, it's not as dramatic. It's not as sexy. It's not as cool. I mean, can you see it now? Mother of three in suburban America spends five minutes praying daily for work around the world. Coming soon to a theater near you. $25 a month allows the work to... It's, but this is the backbone of what God is doing around the world. And it takes all of us engaged in very creative and different ways, depending on our season of life or our resources. And so sending is kingdom activity at its core. Sending is kingdom activity at its core. I didn't always see this in Scripture, but I want to show you a couple verses to make this point. Sending is kingdom activity at its core. This is the verse that the perspectivist column is written on. And Jesus, after preaching in an area, tries to leave and the group tries to hold him. And he says, I need to preach in the other towns as well. That is why I was sent. Jesus had this very clear understanding of his being on earth as one who was sent. God sends. God sends. God sacrifices gives up his son, he becomes poor so that we can become rich. He gives what we have so that we can have what we don't. God sends. Let's look at the next verse. This is Jesus when he meets Paul <clears throat> and says, Paul, I am sending you. Not just you are going, you will, but I am sending you to the Gentiles, to the foreigners, to open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light. God sends, Jesus sends. Next verse. There was a prayer meeting in the early church, and in it, the Holy Spirit impressed upon the group to set aside two people to go complete a specific task. And it says, the two of them, Barnabas and Paul, were sent on their way by the Holy Spirit. Sending is kingdom activity at its core. Last one. 
Jesus, post-resurrection, appears to his disciples and says, as the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. Sending is kingdom activity at its core. Sending is not just saying goodbye. Sending is not just putting uh, pictures of missionaries on our fridge. Sending is not just missing people while they're gone. Sending is a get-your-hands-dirty, all-in, multifaceted, sacrificial role anointed by God to play a strategic role in what he's doing around the world. 